Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update Fridays at this time here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good Friday morning before a great Shabbos and Yantif weekend. Yeah, that's for sure. Long Shabbos and Yantif weekend. Uh, let's start with the good, then we'll get to uh, some of the more challenging things. Let us uh, together uh, thank and acknowledge and uh, praise the tens of thousands of people that did come out in rainy conditions this past Sunday to show their support and declare their love in celebrating Israel. Uh, we don't take this lightly, Malcolm. You know, the larger percentage, unfortunately, of our community does not understand the importance of coming out to events like that, like the Celebrate Israel Parade. So those who did show up, and especially in the weather conditions that were happening on Sunday, uh, we say kudos to them and to all of us who found ourselves on Fifth Avenue. Well, first of all, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that the sense of satisfaction that people had it's, it's one thing when it's a beautiful Sunday day and sunny day and people go out for a stroll on Fifth Avenue and watch the beautiful floats and marching groups. It's another thing when people come out and show real dedication and real commitment when the weather is inclement and to see them uh, marching uh, in with the umbrellas at first. And then it turned beautiful and everybody had a good time who came out. But I think that they can uh, feel a far greater sense of accomplishment and of commitment. And you think about what Israelis went through this week, what what they go through all the time to make sure that Israel remains safe and is there for us in good weather, bad weather, under dire conditions and under great conditions. No question about it. Let's talk about this terrorist attack that claimed the lives of four of our brethren this week in Tel Aviv, uh, in a in a in an area that uh, that has at at times in the last few months been in the headlines when it comes to stabbings and terror attacks, but always seems to be uh, uh, even more of a shock when it happens in in Tel Aviv. Why that is, maybe we could discuss later on. Um, first of all, ad- address the confusion that the media seem to have had about who these people were, whether they were real terrorists or not. Uh, I, I don't know if you if you um, uh, came across this in the after in the immediate aftermath of the initial reports, but uh, I had heard or or read somewhere that that the terrorists were actually dressed as Orthodox Jews, as Haredi Jews, and that and that gave me you know pause to think why it might confuse some media sources. But in reality, we see that they were just dressed as regular businessmen. They were dressed. Uh uh, nicely and in dark suits. So I think people initially uh, may have mistaken that, uh, but uh, the, the rest of their uh, appearance was that they looked like uh, European businessmen or, or uh, Israeli businessmen even. And I think that the point you're, you're referring to is not because of the dress. It is because of the unwillingness of much of the media Fox was an exception at the beginning, but most of the other CNN others refused to call it a terrorist attack, and there's some who still don't call it a terrorist attack. And it, it's, it, this is not the first time it's happened, but here it was such a clear um, case of culpability and of the identification, and they still could not get themselves. Some corrected it a little later and, and uh, at least found the, the voice to say something about what, what kind of act this is. I mean, you can be sure, and of course we've already begun to see, 
that the react any reaction to it will be criticized and that Israel will be taken to task in very harsh terminology about collective punishment and um, other uh, terms that are being used against Israel. So I think this is part of a pattern we've seen in the media and that generally, uh, most of the media, I would say, where they, you know, even, even the resorting to the term militant and refusal to say that they're terrorists when they engage in acts in the case of Israel and in other cases, if you can't name it, you can't deal with it. And the failure to address this and say it's terrorism, clear and simple, and hold everybody to account for it, means that we will fail in the response. Most are familiar with the episode already, but essentially the, the two of them are sitting there at a table, like at any other cafe or restaurant, and at some point just get up and start shooting, right? That's essentially the nature of the attack. Right. And then the question is, you know, the, the, the village they came from is known uh, as one where there is some radical activity. They, um, the question is, who, did anybody aid and abet them? It doesn't take a lot of money. People ask me, the media keeps asking me, well, who paid for it? And I told him, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money to guy buy two guys' suits and send them off and to, give it, to give the them restaurant weapons. where they, right. they just ordered a brownie and then they stood up and started shooting people. And there is indoctrination going on all the time. And it, it stems first and foremost from the Palestinian Authority itself, which continues to pay uh, a stipend to any terrorist who kills Jews. And the more Jews you kill, the more your stipend that, and, or their survivors get it. They pay, I think, double what a Palestinian policeman makes. They pay double to, to a, a killer in, in an Israeli jail. The messages through the media, through the, uh, the mosques, through every uh, possible source, including in the schools, and Abbas keeps paying lip service to, to Western sources, and they all tell us, including I met a foreign minister from, from Europe yesterday, and, you know, oh, we're fighting it, we're telling him all the time, we're telling him. So I said, so cut off the funding. If he doesn't do it, cut off the funding. And he said, well, we can't do that, <laughs> we can't do it. And, I mean, there are reasons, uh, of course, that one could give, and there are even legitimate reasons. But there's never a consequence. And the PA yesterday's statement said it all. Abbas did not, even though he was under a lot of pressure to issue a statement, it came from the office of the president, not from him. And it said, you know, it said we're against, we continue to be against, this is a paraphrase, you know, terrorist attacks, et cetera, or attacks on civilians, uh, despite the, the justification. Well, once you start saying there's a justification, or implying that there's a justification, it's just that this is, a, you know, not a nice way to do it, is is already a defeat for the whole purpose. Yeah. Uh, and yet he's not held to account for it. Yeah. People were praising, oh, you see, Abbas came out with a statement. No, he did not. His office issued a statement, and the statement was not a good one. The posters recognizing these two animals as uh, martyrs that we see on social media, those are real, right? Those are not... Those, yes, of course. Yeah, the, um, well, I'm exactly just, right. I'm trying to make the point that you know, in, 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 this is not just you know, uh, being photoshopped and sent around the world via the internet. These are being hung up in Palestinian neighborhoods, so to speak, and they're being heralded as heroes. And in addition to that, of course, major celebrations break out in certain areas when uh, when these terrorists are quote unquote successful in their mission. Uh, frankly, by the nature of the attack, it's a miracle more people weren't killed, and. Um, you start to wonder if it's the, if it's and you know I I don't even want to go there and say it, but if it's this simple for them to carry out an attack like that, you know what one one wonders whether we're in for another, you know, um, 
another run of uh, of similar terror attacks in major cities in Israel. Uh, it's well, hard. To, it's concerned that, and, and uh, we spoke to people in the police and elsewhere because that is always a concern that you see a new phase being initiated. We saw it with the knife fathers; they called it knife attacks, um, and the the um, each each time it invites others to copycat, and that's why sometimes the glorification of these things makes it even more of an incentive young people or others to come in and remember they were related and the last case we had of a, of a killing I think or one of the recent cases was also two cousins who, who engage in it which means that they indoctrinate and they incite each other as well and it's the environment in which they're in that feeds it one of the most unbelievable twists to this story is that the one of the terrorists actually ended up in in the home of an Israeli um, I mean I'm sure many people have seen it already but the uh, he he ends up asking for a drink, being invited in, and then and then when this cop goes to the scene of the crime, realizes the person in his house is actually one of the terrorists, which is mm-hmm. quite unbelievable to say the least, and another miracle that more people weren't harmed. Um, it's just uh, it, you know, and and then there's this unbelievable, and and, and it's amazing. I wish I could analyze and decipher. Which attacks get this type of reaction? I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. And which get other types? I mean, there. It is so often that you know things are cleaned up, so to speak, put away, and we're on to the next thing a few minutes later. In this case, government officials, uh, prominent people, uh, you know, made made statements by actually going to this cafe the next day and showing solidarity and and defiance. And it's interesting. Do you sometimes think why certain episodes, why certain terror attacks get that type of reaction, while others do not get the camaraderie afterward that uh, that we saw this week? No, because the penetration of of Tel Aviv was seen as a different or an escalation, and after a period of relative quiet, it, it stood out even more. And as you said, the, the people saw the potential for much. Greater event, and it, you know this site is right across from the Kiriya, where the Ministry of Defense uh, sits. So it it um, you know it's it's seen as a more blatant act, but you know there's often a reaction that doesn't get the coverage that this necessarily got it. But people do go and do often uh, show up in large numbers, and even at the funerals, which are are often not not covered as well. Sometimes because the families don't want it, but. You can't have an attendance of thousands of people. Uh, official Israeli reaction, you mentioned that the town that they're from is on lockdown at the moment? Yes. And is there anything else that's being done in quote-unquote retaliation? Yes, because this is Ramadan, and the, the permits of 83,000 people uh, who are, are actually given it to for the purpose of going to pray at Al-Aqsa on the Temple Mount, uh, th- those have been canceled for now. All right, and uh, do you think there'll be any type of uh, military action, air force action? Well, the, the the police and and others raided the village right away. I guess looking for it was also they were looking for the third uh, party and who was captured, uh, as you noted. So uh, I think that uh, if you look at the words of Defense Minister Lieberman and of the Prime Minister, it, this there will be more actions. You know, they're demanding that the international community, which met in Paris last week, 
and of course the focus is always what pressure can be brought to bear in Israel because there's so little they can do on the Palestinians, they say. Even though the Europeans are giving them $450 million to Hamas, and, um, you know, for UN, supposedly for UN expenditures in Gaza, but most of it ends up in, in uh, Hamas's hands, uh, the U.S. gives $350 million. So there has to be a, a, a price now. Hamas is having a problem paying salaries, so there is a lot of leverage uh, that you can bring to bear. They're spending perhaps $100 million a month on tunnels, uh, but they and, and trying to build them all the time, uh, but they don't spend on people's housing and others, and, and everybody's saying, oh, you got to do more for the people. People, when, in fact, the stuff Israel lets in, the, the, the thousand trucks a day, all of the construction equipment, ends up being used to build tunnels, and and they acknowledge Israel caught now two guys who are the tunnel builders uh, who came across the border, young people, I think 17, 18 years old. But they tell about the investment, and and people in Gaza have been complaining, even giving interviews without their names to Western sources, telling how they hear the rumble of trucks all night going to to these sites where they're uh, digging and building uh, uh, tunnels. So, uh, and they did some rocket launches uh, today in Gaza, testing longer and longer range um, uh, missiles. So they're acting uh, all the time in in blatant and obvious ways, and yet the reaction is is so limited, and in the condemnation continues. You know, we went uh, and again at this meeting with the foreign minister. I mean, we learned much more over the weekend. We raised with him that they voted for the World Health Organization condemnation of Israel. The only country, and you all know Israel's record of treating uh, Syrians, thousands of Syrians, treating people from Gaza, treating now Abbas's brother and Hania's nephew are all in hospitals in Israel while they did it. And it turns out that they doctored the whole thing. The pictures, they show the Palestinian child supposedly being attacked by settlers and with the police, Israeli occupation forces watching, and it turns out that it was the removal of settlers that's what the picture was. <clears throat> and they took pictures from the Syrian war and doctored them. This is in the World Health Organization report against Israel. And the facts are wrong. The whole thing was doctored, and they are beginning to admit now that it was a mistake, and they shouldn't have put it out the way it was, and, uh, you know, people didn't read it, and we didn't write it, and we didn't know it was writing. A complete fraud. And yet, here's the money from the U.N. is going into it. The condemnation is public. You can't retract it once you, once you put it out. And the same thing with so many of the other uh, UN agencies, uh, and the and the report that we saw from the International Atomic Energy Agency that came out finally this past weekend, where there's no documentation, where there's all the details that are supposed to be given about the, you know the amount of rich uranium, all of the other technical information. It's less information than we got from before the deal, <laughs> and and wow. the, the uh, information that came out that. United States, which we talked about a couple of months ago when it came out that they gave $1.7 billion. Uh, that money, as it turns out from an examination of the Iranian budget this week, where they list it, went to the Defense Department, which means to the uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard, the IRGC, got the money. And for all of their illegal uh, activities, and, and the United States released seven Iranians for who were arrested for illicit activities, 14 who were being pursued, everything dropped, you know, it was seen as a diplomatic victory, and now we're told the money went for old weapons deals that they made with the Shah. 
So the deal was $400 million 36 years ago, and $1.3 billion is interest on that $400 million. Wow. And, and the real key, Nahum, is something I saw that got almost no coverage this week, that the, in the exa- same examination of the budget, the defense budget for Iran in 2017 is $19 billion. It's a 90% increase over 2016. If that doesn't speak for itself, tell you what their intentions is. The Qasem Soleimani, who we've talked many times, the head of the Quds forces of the IRGC, but the key guy in the Iranian military adventurism in Syria, etc., he's listed now as an official advisor to the Iraqi government, and the foreign minister of Iraq, uh, Jafari, uh, said that he's an advisor, and he said, we also have Americans and Europeans that we pay for, you know, who, who are uh, advising the government. When we know that his purpose is to assure Iranian control, that they do claim control of Baghdad, and they they uh, use money to deploy Shiite militias, who are even more vicious than some of the other groups that, that deal with there, but whose purpose is to assure that Iran's government will be uh, Shiite and will be sympathetic to Iran, and Iran will be able to sustain uh, uh, control over it. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. What do you think of the move by uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York this week, in regard to BDS? Well, having been involved in it from its inception, I think it's a great thing. It's an important message. Uh, yesterday, the, uh, my office is happening in the same building as the governor, and there was a big demonstration against the governor uh, by the Students for Justice and Code Pink and all sorts of other groups, but there were hundreds of people who were protesting, and I want to see and I hope to hear that your listeners and our community as a whole, and all of those who care about Israel are letting the governor know how much they appreciate uh, this action, which is a counter to BDS. And it's, it, there are 20 states that have adopted or are in the process of adopting legislation and about a dozen more that are preparing it. But his is the first executive order by a governor because he got tired of waiting for the legislature to act, and I hope that they will. And many, a number of members of the Assembly and the City Council and others were there. Uh, and and the Senate, uh, state Senate, uh, he he uh, spoke actually very strongly. He gets it. It's not just something he did pro forma. Uh, and I think it's it is an important statement because by by letting them know that if you, as he said, if you participate in the boycott, you don't do business in New York with New York State. Right. It is a message, and I'm sure it's going to be tested in all sorts of threats by civil liberties groups, uh, several civil liberties uh, groups, that this is a, 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 an abuse of freedom of speech, etc. It doesn't say you can't say anything. It says that you can't act in an illegal way. We have anti-boycott laws, Arab anti-boycott laws, that are on the books for many years. So that's protected, uh, and it's different. Nobody, he didn't say you can't criticize Israel. He said if you boycott Israel, and they even said if you promote a boycott, that was added later, may not uh, be sustained, but to, to have legislation and to, or, and to have an executive order is a very important statement. The, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel was actually in touch with him afterwards, which I thought he was... He sent pretty- him a letter, and he thanked him for it, and 
uh, was, he, they have developed a relationship. And the governor, especially since his trip to Israel when he stood in the tunnels during the Gaza War, uh, uh, he has been very uh, outspoken about it, and he, as he was uh, Sunday in making the announcement. Um, speaking of the prime minister, who we just mentioned, uh, he met this week with Russian President Putin in Moscow. What could you tell us about that visit? Well, you know, this is the 25th anniversary of the reestablishment of relations between Israel after the collapse of the FSU, etc. Uh, and um, look, there's a heavy agenda between Israel and, and Russia. People try to say, well, this is Russia filling the void, which it is doing in the Middle East, as the U.S. and the West appear to be retracting. They're stepping in everywhere they can, even though they have very limited resources and capacity, they they are able to to do this um, in spreading their, their influence and their role, as they did in Syria. They've now become a critical player, even though their investment is a fraction of what the United States and the West is, and military and otherwise. So he, he Syria clearly was a major issue, and to maintain the coordination, which has worked out well, we haven't seen any incidents between Israeli and uh, Russian forces as Israel needs to respond periodically to the movement of weapons uh, to Hezbollah, more sophisticated weapons, the uh, and the security issues. Um, but they made clear, uh, the Prime Minister made clear, that the U.S. is still the cornerstone uh, relationship uh, for Israel and will remain so. Uh, Russia can be very important in controlling attacks that might hit Israel from the north, meaning through Hezbollah, Iran, etc., those that they are working with. Uh, and, you know, they, the supply of the S-300 sophisticated anti-aircraft missile system to, to Iran, I think those were key issues in, in the discussions between them. And about the uh, security of Israel in terms of the Syrian border, what kind of, what kind of influence? Because Netanyahu made a point of that this week. Um, emphasizing how he wouldn't allow Syria to, uh, in any way, infiltrate or sponsor any other group to infiltrate up north. Uh, does Russia have a role in any of that or control over that situation? They have influence, and and it is because you know the movement of troops and the where Russia uh, exercises influence over Hezbollah activities because of their association with Iran, because they're fighting side by side with them, and and, and the effort, joint effort to keep Assad. In power um, gives them uh, some influence, and I think you know the, the northern border has been getting more and more attention. There's a whole new system of the border protection to prevent Hezbollah or any of the other groups that are there. You know, there are about five, six groups: Al Nusra, Al Qaeda, others, Muslim Brotherhood, who are, are near uh, the border. So they have literally carved out new cliffs in the mountains. They have uh, uh, put up um, more and more, uh, it's not a fence, it's much stronger than a fence, and even near Matula, for instance, where you have a 20-foot-high fence, they are reinforcing it, and it's about a 60-mile border from the sea to uh, the mountains, as they say, to getting to the Golan, and uh, that's from the Roshan Nikra, essentially. So this is expected to cost about a billion shekels uh, when it's done. It involves civilian engineering and, and military, and it's very hard because when you have a mountainous region to put up a, a fence is, is a, 
engineering feat, not a construction uh, job. But they're also doing other things. I mean, literally lobbing off sections in the mountains so you make unpassable cliffs so they can't enter, and they cleared some forests so that you could take away the areas where the uh, terrorists can hide. So it's a huge investment. And we know the Lebanese army has put up these very high watchtowers so they can keep, they they can watch what troop movements there are on the Israeli side. Uh, I'm sure that... uh, that might become a very necessary target at some point. And and, and does this also help in uh, in keeping an eye on where missiles and rockets might be stored and and where they may be launched from? The system Israel's putting in place it does have some uh, also some high watchtowers and and uh, points, but Israel uses drones and uses other means to monitor uh, those. Not not the uh, watchtowers are the Lebanese army. Actually, not even Hezbollah. Right. Uh, who's built them. That war up north was 10 years ago, summer of 06. Uh, it sounds like, uh, just based on technology of the last 10 years and where we've gotten to and some of the things we saw back in 2014, that th- a- an attack like that, God forbid, in the northern part of Israel would be responded to in a much different fashion by Israel than it was back then. Because you have one major change, uh, and that is that, that the government of Lebanon today, as opposed to then, is not a civilian government. It is a Hamas. It is a Hezbollah government, and therefore they, they did not want to strike at infrastructure and things because they said that Hamas was a terrorist group operating in certain areas, and you don't do punishment to rest. Now they are part of the government and and working with the army. So I think the the some of the restrictions would be removed, but they have rebuilt all of the infrastructure, and we know that they are constantly moving missiles, and they have 150,000 missiles now. In, in Lebanon, and uh, hopefully some of them deteriorate over time and have to keep the spare parts. But there's a constant flow from Iran to Hezbollah, despite their financial situation and inability to pay. But the, and and uh, their troops have been diminished by the conflict in Syria, where they have taken a pretty heavy toll among some of their officers, um, and they're also fighting in on the Lebanese border against the ISIS encroachments which ties some of them down. Well, not, but not today, the Lebanese army and, and Hezbollah are, are working in tandem. Yeah, understood. Not to minimize that relationship, but I think and what I'm alluding to, of course, is uh, the sophistication of Iron Dome and more missile defense systems that uh, Israel either did not have at their disposal or were not as sophisticated 10 years ago. When you have the, the number of uh, missiles and you have increased guidance systems, uh, they pose a threat no matter what. It is true, and but remember how expensive it is to launch and how, you know, this is, a, as I said, a 60-mile border where you can launch, and they're supposedly developing even the capacity to launch by sea, which is, has been reported, though I don't know if it's been actually uh, completely documented. Um, so the uh, Iron Dome and David Sling, all those are critical. And Israel needs more and more because they got to be prepared for Hamas and Hezbollah simultaneously. Right. And, um, if, and if we remember, and, and those that that's a, a big area to cover. Yeah. And if we remember what happened up north, as you just reminded me, uh, they were not shooting one missile at a time. Right. So it's much more of a challenge. By the way, back to the Tel Aviv um, terror attack for a moment. And I know that there's no answer to this, but you give me an opportunity to uh, voice my frustration in light of these things. Uh, maybe maybe it's not the right time for the mayor of Tel Aviv and certain other members of government to start their own analysis regarding why 
these terror attacks are taking place, especially if you're going to suggest that it's the quote-unquote Israeli occupation that's causing it? Well, that was very unfortunate, the mayor of Tel Aviv's uh, remarks. I'm sure he regrets uh, saying, at least I hope he does. It was very damaging, and it's been criticized uh, pretty roundly. By the way, we should note that Saudi Arabia yeah. did criticize. The, so uh, and, and, they condemned the attack, uh, right? Which I think is the first time, and supposedly some other Arab countries, but the Saudi one got a, a lot of attention. And, you know, the Saudis are building up this Islamic coalition against Iran and supposedly against terrorism and uh, trying to line up the, the Shiite countries uh, against the expanding confrontation that they're having. But it's not just there, and it's not just in the Middle East as a, as a whole. It's in Africa. It's in Asia and Latin America. I met African leaders this week. The first thing they raised is Iran, 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 Iran mm-hmm. support for terrorist organizations, Iran's encroachments, and Iran's activities. Uh, and uh, you remember the Arab League states uh, have been pushing to cut diplomatic ties with Iran. Sudan did, others did, uh, Djibouti and Somalia and some of the others... Uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned the Saudi Arabian condemnation. I was wondering if it was the first time ever, and you think it was, which is really even more significant than I thought. Um, a couple of things. The the uh, I read this. Uh, you posted this article that I read about uh, uh, certain um, uh, members of Congress here who want to try to impose more sanctions on Iran. Now, earlier in this conversation, you described to what degree Iran is, or or what degree we are suspecting they are following the. Uh, the, the agreement, the uh, nuclear Iran nuclear deal, uh, not to the degree that they're supposed to. Is it realistic that more sanctions could in fact go through Congress at this time and uh, and have a greater effect on the situation? I do think it's possible. Senator Cardin, uh, who's the lead Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, certainly the Republicans uh, are looking for ways to to impose additional sanctions. The uh, you know unfortunately everybody's focused so much on the election or their re-elections in Congress, and uh, they're not really dealing sufficiently, I think, with the substantive issues, but uh, I think the the report that I mentioned, uh, some of the other revelations that keep coming out about Iran's activities around the world, not just in the Middle East, but particularly there as well, uh, I think underscores the the motivation and, and um, commitment of some of the members to uh, find additional sanctions uh, to be placed on, on it and to try and stop this, this uh, pressure that the U.S. is applying on European businesses to do business because American banks can't, but European banks can, and they don't want to. And you've seen the pieces by Stuart Levy, who was the architect as, uh, under Secretary of the Treasury of the uh, sanctions regime, uh, coming out and saying, this is you can't ask banks to do this because it's Iran's whole banking system is infected. It is a money laundering uh, system. It's, it's, it's uh, rife with corruption and, and illegal activities. And they said HSBC and Standard and others, the major banks said, we're not going to do business with Iran. Right. And the, the, I think that members are looking at this and find, and Secretary Kerry and others have encouraged them because the Iranians are complaining that they're not getting the benefits. Well, we're not getting the benefits that we were supposed to get from this deal. Iran is acting with much more aggression. Khomeini himself gave a speech now talking about uh, uh, that they were attacking the United States, saying there will be no cooperation with the United States. And he talked about the three great Satans, the United States, then Britain, and then Israel. And his answer is very clear. 
I mean, there's no confusing the message that he was he, he explicitly sends, and yet we continue to to act as if you know he's still a partner and he's still somebody that we can do business with, and that and the other countries. And I heard these again this week, and as I hear almost every week when I meet uh, leaders coming from abroad, that that. Um, that the message you're getting is this lack of resolve and the and the the fact that Iran can get away with virtually everything that it does. Oh yes, you made a point this week to condemn the uh, ISIS murder of 19 captive Yazidi young women. Uh, well, tell us the background uh, of this uh, uh, episode, and is it uh, in fact a case of real ethnic cleansing? It, it's a it's a case of genocide. Uh, and on a smaller scale, but it's a genocide nonetheless where they're trying to eliminate uh, um, the Yazidi people and other minorities, and they are constantly per, uh, persecuting and uh, uh, murdering people, but they they don't hide it. They advertise it. Here were 19 women who refused to submit themselves to be sex slaves to, to uh, Yazidi, to, to uh, ISIS troops, and they burnt them alive in a cage, and I think that we have a moral responsibility. We work with the Yazidis. They, they, um, you know, th- this is an offshoot. Uh, they call them a cult, a sect, whatever, uh, and they don't recognize them as legitimate Muslims. And they have enslaved them now for several years. Had the West acted quickly, they could have freed them. The, the Kurds, actually, the Pashmerga, did go in and, and uh, free some of them. But here you have thousands of women who are being sold into slavery all over the Middle East who are being held uh, as and young women, I mean children even, teenagers included uh, for the, the service of the troops, and they find all sorts of religious justifications within, within Islam to, to do it, and their religious leaders uh, approve it. And I just think we cannot be silent in the face of it. This is where, in Iraq? This, is in, this was in Iraq, yes. This, this particular incident, but it's in Syria all the time, and, and it's elsewhere, but this, yes, in Iraq. And the United Nations says things about this or not? Right. Their, 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 their condemnations are still ringing in my ear. Nothing, huh? Nothing. Nothing. And I raised it with them, and I saw, you know, I've been meeting some of the candidates for secretary general the, the, to succeed Ban Ki-moon. And, you know, of course, they all pay lip service to it. And I tell them, you know, for us to speak out, uh, I'm worried that I don't want to cause them damage that they'll say, oh, you see, the Jews are, are, are with them and working with them. And, right. But, I mean, I can't, I think that if we mean never again, that we cannot be signed, because if it gets accepted, why shouldn't it spread? And it has, because we let them get away with it. So so, so many other groups, the Houthis, the, the Al-Qaeda and others, all are doing beheading now, and it becomes the major recruitment tool in, in uh, bringing uh, these young people to come to, to their flag and to fight and to, to die for them, it, it, it's astonishing. Unbelievable. Uh, any uh, idea when the new Secretary General takes over, or how does that work? Yes, it will be the end of the year, but uh, the election will probably, it takes place, the selection process is already underway. There were nine candidates, or 11, who have already presented themselves uh, and they come from all over. It was supposed to be an East European, and the likelihood a woman, because there's never been a woman uh, secretary general, and I think there's a general agreement with that. Uh, there is there are male candidates uh, or a male candidate, but the um, you know there is as disparate as the former uh, minister, uh, prime minister in uh, New Zealand, and the foreign minister of Argentina 
and uh, two Bulgarians. So there is, uh, and I think a Portuguese uh, foreign minister man. The um, we'll know by when. By when will we know who the next secretary general will be? Probably, I think, by the general assembly in September. Uh, we should know by then what uh, what the story is. All right, I got to get to our by you didn't have a wonderful Shabbos and Yontif, and we are on schedule to speak again next week. Yeah, next week, God willing, from Jerusalem, ah. and uh, we'll, so we'll have a different perspective and uh, see the glorious things that have happened. God willing, this week. Ah, yes. I hope everybody has a meaningful Shavuos and. and um, Celebrate with your families. Yes, yes, yes. And pass on to the next generation all of these important things that we discuss. Malcolm Honeline is Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday, 7.40 Eastern Time for the weekly update, including a week from today. Um, he'll be back with us from Jerusalem with a weekly update here at JM in the AM.